Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. Starling? Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. But he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lecter's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? Thank you, Clary. All right, guys. Welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Jimbo, and I'm joined today by these two serial killers. The titular tired (laughs) Terrence. And from the underworld, Kyle. Kyle. Uh, today we'll be talking about uh, the number 74 greatest movie of all time according to AFI's top 100 movies, The Silence of the Lambs. Um, I just watched this again last night to get a refresher. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it again, so uh, I know this is going to be a long episode, so Terrence, let's just dive right into it. Jump in. No jump questions, Jim? No, well, no I'm, questions. A whole nother episode of no questions. I am disappointed. Okay, okay. okay, I'll <laughs> okay Terrence, have you eaten anybody? What? <laughs> all right let me ask you this question then um what is your favorite anthony hopkins movie Ooh, that is a good question that is so is it thor one good. two or three this is <laughs> this is why we don't ask questions because then terrence is stuff like oh that's a good question yeah you know what? Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna cop out with the with the Marvel answer. No, I, I honestly no. He's 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 really good in these roles and and this and uh, Hannibal, 
probably just really, really excellent. I mean, he's just so good in everything he does. But we'll, we'll stick with that. I'm going to go on theme here and then go, because it's the most recent movies I've watched. With so he minute. took the easy way out, Kyle. <laughs> uh, for me, I have to go with The Edge that he did with... Uh, easy way out, Mr. Yeah, Bust out your phone. <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember what the one is I'm thinking Yeah, of. you guys are looking up casting right now, but meanwhile, <laughs> I have the casting written down. Ha, 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 ha. I planned ahead with my role that I do every week. Mostly, <laughs> uh, anyway, I would say the edge where he's basically hunting, where he's being like a gets on a plane crash, and he's hunted down by a bear, then has to kill the bear with uh, Alec Baldwin. Well, and, like a great movie, it's my favorite Andy Hopkins movie, probably. Do you do know that he was also in Bram Stoker's Dracula? Yes, he was in uh, Legends yeah. of the Fall, but he was really good at Meet Joe Black too. If you remember Meet uh, Joe Black, actually, I've never seen Meet Joe Black. Really? Yeah. Uh, Legend Tom, of Fall, Tom Mask of Zorro, Thor, Thor, Transformers, The Last Night. That movie is so bad, and Andy Hawkins <laughs> is so bad in it, but I love it for it. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, okay, wait, 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 one, one quick thing. Anthony Hawkins picks up, an, picks up an alien assault rifle at Stonehenge and fires it at Megatron, and somehow the movie is still boring. It's amazing. <laughs> 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 All right, Terrence, take it away. All right, Silence of the Lambs, release date, February 14th, 1991. What a great casting. What What a great love story. (laughs) Really great movie to take your special someone to see. (laughs) Uh, Feel romantic with Buffalo Bill. (laughs) This is very obviously rated (laughs) R. (laughs) Yeah, rated R. Um, Its budget was $19 million. (laughs) <laughs> that is, that's Sorry. the furthest description. <laughs> that was bad. So, budget nineteen million. Uh, count for inflation. That's thirty-eight million today, uh, which is less than what we covered last week, which is came out in the same year, nineteen ninety-one. Last week we did defending your life. Um, if we're looking at just the inflation cost, last week it was forty-six point one million. This week we're looking at thirty-eight million. So it's very interesting to see a lower budget film. Uh, but wait till you see the gross of this. So gross USA and Canada, we're looking at 130.7 million. Account for inflation, that's 262 million dollars. Opening weekend USA and Canada, it made 13.7 million dollars. That's 28.5 million today. Nice. And then gross worldwide, 272.7 million dollars. Accounting for inflation, that's 546.6 million dollars movie did very well I'm not proud of it it <laughs> made so much yep yeah that's a lot of money so yeah and well worth it it is money earned Sounds of the Lambs is really good I like it so yeah uh, I just <laughs> thought that was interesting that like you know the we're looking at th- this movie came out in the same year as the last movie we covered had a lower budget but my Gosh, did it come out on top? It, it made so much money. So anyway, box office, February 1991. And we kind of got a glimpse of this last week. So we're looking at number one. And this is just February. I believe last week was uh, So these came April. out the same year. Yeah, same yeah. year. Wow. Same year. So we're going to see the same top five. Uh, but instead of, you know, doing the... the yeah. Going down. <laughs> yeah, instead of going down, we're just going to stick to the top five this time. But uh, so yeah. we have... Uh, Instead of April, now we're looking at February 1991 this week. So, number one, we still have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. (laughs) The Secret of Ooze, right? At number two, Out of Justice. Number three, Silence of the Lambs. Number four, Dances with Wolves. 
Number five, Sleeping with the Enemy. And then uh, six, New Jack City. Number seven, Defending Your Life. That was another good year for movies. Yeah, there's a lot of good movies. That's, it's an excellent year for movies. You know. Then we have Box Office 1991. Uh, once again, we're just reiterating kind of what we saw last week. Number one, Terminator 2. Two, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Oh, that movie Three, too. Home Alone. Four, Sons of the Lambs. Five, City Slickers. Slickers. I haven't said that one a long time. Oh, it's a good movie, though. That's yeah. a good it's a movie worth covering someday. But yeah, 1991. I'd say, like, at this point, thinking about it, it's probably, like, maybe the best year of that decade of films overall. Maybe. No, there's a. There's, there's, there's a movie saying. But Terminator 2 is so good, though. Yeah, Terminator 2 is good. That's right. Um, it's the best year, folks. This was directed by Jonathan Dim. Uh, who also directed Rachel Getting Married, Philadelphia, an adaptation. Uh, as far as the writing credits goes, uh, this novel was based off of a book that Thomas Harris wrote, uh, which was a trilogy which cons- consisted of this. Um, it wasn't Red Dragon? It, it, yeah, it was, it was. First, it was Sounds of the Sounds Lambs. Of the Lambs. No, no, Red Dragon Red was Dragon first. Was as far as the books goes, Red Dragon oh. was first, then it was Silence of the Lambs, then Hannibal, then Hannibal Rising. The movies went out of order. They came out with Silence of the Lambs, they did Hannibal, went back and did Red Dragon, and did they ever do Hannibal Rising? If they did, I have no what was of it. No, well, they the, did a TV show. Was, was that I know the, they did was a that TV the name show, of it? but I believe that was a prequel. Also, no, because they because they did Sons of the Lambs, and they did the Hannibal movie, then they did the Hannibal sequel, yeah, and then they and then they did Red Dragon, Red Dragon, which was a prequel to the first movie, and then they did a fourth movie where Anthony Hopkins didn't reprise his role. That was the Hannibal Rising, right? Where he goes uh, oh. in World War, it was him in World War Two, and uh, really, yeah, and then uh, getting getting revenge for some Nazis that killed his sister. Huh. Not a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good movie either, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Um, and uh, interesting little fact between the writer and the director um, was the writer was fully confident that uh, Jonathan mm. Dim, the director, uh, would do the book justice. But even despite that and knowing that the cast was in good hands, he's still like, I will probably never watch the movie. Mm-hmm. That's understandable for a lot of authors. I mean, like, it's in it, the end of the day, like, if you're writing something like that, it's your baby, and you yeah. can't just let someone else take control of that, you know, in some cases. Like, some actors are different about it, you know, I mean, some writers are different about it, but, like, in general, like, I understand, like, <laughs> yeah. I could never watch them, like, no, you, you took my baby, and you did something else with it, that's yours now. <laughs> but, I mean, it had the thumbs up from him. Oh, yeah, yeah. He just didn't He's still, like, he's like I'm, I'm sure it's yet. good, I'm just, but it's just, I can't, I can't separate myself from it. You would think he would want to be a consultant, at least, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I didn't and even see that one. So, I, I haven't read the book so i can't say how you know accurate or not accurate it is but hey uh let us know if you have read the books please yeah um moving on we have uh ted tally uh who helped in writing the screenplay who also helped write red dragon um and then some other works he's done is uh terra nova and 12 strong being the most recent movie that they've done 12 strong actually a pretty recent movie terra nova wasn't that the tv series uh, was I think the there was a there TV was a, series was, called Terranova, but I don't yeah. think it's related uh, to the movie. There, there's a movie and a TV series, both unrelated. 12 Strongest Afghanistan Soldiers on Horses. That's great. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, music by Howard Shore, uh, and that name is familiar because he also does music, helped do music for The Lord of the Rings, uh, Gangs of New York, and Twilight. Two out of three. <laughs> <laughs> you almost convinced me. <laughs> Director of That's photography. That's what I think, though. I love Twilight. Okay. <laughs> so then we have uh, our director of photography. We have Tak Fujimoto. 
who also did photography for uh, uh, cinematography for the Sixth Sense signs and the original Death Race to the uh, two thousand. Actually, it's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so um, pretty pretty solid uh, uh, cinematographer. cinematographer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, then we have film editing by uh, Craig McKay, who also helped edit uh, Philadelphia Reds and Sin Nombre. Sin Nombre. You're on the pronunciation A game today, Terrence. So you know, I'm really proud of you right now. Now mess it up just to ruin it. <laughs> the press, I know, you put right? the pressure on I know, right? Now, now that you've said it, it's all going downhill. He's going to mispronounce John now. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it Jan? It's Jan? Jeez, the silence of Terrence. <laughs> stops to, stops to. So uh, this was produced by Grace Blake, uh, associate producer. Ron Bosman, producer. Gary... Whoa, uh... Goetzman, executive producer. Uh, then we have producer Edward Saxon, and then finally producer Kenneth Oot. Kenneth Oot. Yep, Oot. Mr. Oot. How are you doing today, Mr. Oot? <laughs> and then uh, finally off to the technical specs. We're looking at a runtime about an hour 58, so almost pushing that two hour mark. And then there was an original cut that was two hours and 18 minutes. Um, and then there was actually, a, uh, I believe that would be the 12-minute cut right before uh, they catch, Clarice catches Buffalo Bill. There's a 12-minute cut that um, the director had with the editor. And uh, he was like, I just have this gut feeling that it's a little too long, so we're going to cut it, and then it'll feel right. And so... The editor was like, that, really? I mean, we put a lot of time into filming that 12 minutes. And then he's just like, just go ahead and do it. And then so that would be the two different cuts. I imagine, I don't know for sure, but I think because of uh, only like a 10-minute difference between them, almost like a 20-minute, that 12-minute cut made it into the original cut along with maybe some other scenes. So another little fun fact from this movie. Yeah. And, as far and, as like the technical and filming yeah. goes, yeah, it's all about getting that right pace of the film and all that kind of stuff. And it, you know, it's probably the right choice to make that cut. No I mean, matter it's, the, it's you know. the director's vision, and yeah. if he says, "Hey, let's do that," as long as uh, the producers give the okay, he's good to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was done in Dolby Stereo Sound Mix, uh, another movie in color. Aspect ratio one point eight five by one. This was using Panaflex camera lenses and by and Panavision. Um, this was edited in Technicolor Hollywood, as majority of the movies that we cover are. And also edited in Deluxe Hollywood. The, this is where the final prints were done. The negative format is 35 millimeter. And finally, we have our uh, cinematographic process, which is spherical. And I think what I'll do is next episode, I'll, I'll go over... Uh, or in the next couple episodes, I'll, I'll do a little another deep dive into you know covering the um, uh, cinematographic process as a refresher. I think last time I went over it was super early in like early episodes, so refresher will never hurt. This way, I can finally figure out what he's been talking about this whole time. <laughs> well, uh, for Ben Hur, there's all kinds of stuff going oh, on with yeah, that one. There really <laughs> so, is. Um, and then finally, printed film format, 35 millimeter Eastman. Uh, five three eight four, and that's just the type of film used. Excellent, and that's it for the technical specifications. Now, my all-time favorite part is the. Oh, 
cards. Uh, there are a lot for this movie, so uh, I'm just gonna start shotgunning this stuff out. Academy Awards USA 1992. It won Oscar Best Picture. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, obviously. Best Actor in a Leading Role, Anthony Hopkins. Best Actress in a Leading Role, Jodie Foster. Best Director, Jonathan Dim. And finally, Best Writing Screenplay based on material previously produced or published, Ted Towie. Uh, this was also nominated for Best Sound and Best Film Editing. Uh, we have BAFTA Awards, 1992. It, it won- stands for what? Uh, British something film TV awards. That's <laughs> <laughs> exactly it. You're right. Uh, we have winner BAFTA Film Award, Best Actor Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress Jodie Foster. Gonna see that a lot. Mm-hmm. Nomination BAFTA Film Award for uh, Best Screenplay Adapted, Best Cinematography, Best Direction, and Best Editing. Then we have Best Film. Best Original Score and Best Sound. And those are all the nominations. Then we have our, once again, uh, 2020 Awards in 2012. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Uh, We have uh, the winner of the Felix Awards of Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Nominated for Best Supporting Actor, which would be uh, Ted Levine. Best Supporting Actress, Brooke Smith. Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, Best Sound Design, Best Cinematography. Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. Every time. USA, (laughs) 2010. Nominated for Best DVD Collection, the Hannibal Anthology. And then once again, Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, USA, 1992. It won... Best Horror Film, Best Actor, Writing, Makeup, Actress. I'm shotgunning these now. Nominated for um, Director, Music, Costumes. American Cinema Editors, USA 1992. Nominated for an Eddie for Best Edited Film Feature. Uh, Amsterdam Fantastic Film Festival 1991. It won the Silver Scream Award. Silver Jonathan Scream. Dem. Uh, I like that award. I'm gonna have to look into that and you know see if we can pull up some other stuff with uh, Halloween around the corner to see if we can find some more scream awards. Exactly, some good highlights. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's the. Did you get that down at the bottom? Oh, I'm skipping some of these. Oh, okay. there is a lot. Yeah, um, more of these uh, that we've maybe heard of, or one of these that make me read less. You know, some awards are better than others, folks, and Terrence is the judge. (laughs) Awards Circuit Community Awards, 1991. They won an ACCA for Best Motion Picture, Best Director, Best Cast Ensemble. See, that's the first time I've seen Mm -hmm. that award. That's interesting. Uh, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Film Editing, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. They were nominated for Best Sound, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, and Best Original Score, Best Stunt, stunt Ensemble, hmm. uh, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and Best Production Design. Then we have the Awards of Japanese Academy, 1992. Nominated for uh, Awards of Japanese Academy, Best Foreign Film, Berlin International Film Festival. So this was just a worldwide hit. Uh, 1991, winner of the Silver Berlin Bear Best Director. Um, it tied with Ultra. You know what always gets me? It's like the Academy of the Japanese Academy or whatever, where 
because we're used to seeing this as an American film, but it is a foreign film to them, so they give it the Foreign Film Award. Yeah. Oh, it shows you for a loop for a second, like, wait a minute, America isn't the center of the world again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Forget about that. You know, the 90s, everybody, we were all raised to believe, you know, America is the center of the world. And it's harder to forget about that sometimes. <laughs> Terrence, Wait. what else were they have? Well, let's see. We have the Blue Ribbon Awards in 1992, where they won a Blue Ribbon Award for Best Foreign Language Film. <laughs> best Ice Cream Flavor. <laughs> best Ice Cream Flavor. <laughs> cream flavor. Of the Lamb. Hannibal. Huh. Come and get it. Huh. Eat your heart out, Ben <laughs> <laughs> Literally. What? <laughs> We have the Boston Society of Film Critic Awards, 1991. They won a BSFC for Best Film, Best Supporting Actor, Best Director, Best Cinematography. Then we have the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards, 1992. They won Best Picture, Actor, Actress, Director, Screenplay, all the best. Uh, Caesar Awards, France, 1992. I'm naming these just to show, like, how it was just a hit everywhere. (laughs) Uh, Nominated for a César. Uh, best Foreign Film. <laughs> Dallas-Fort Worth Film Critics Association Awards. 1992, they won Best Actor and Actress. They were nominated for Best Picture, Director, and Screenplay. Directors Guild of America. USA 1992, they won Outstanding Directional Achievement in Motion Pictures. Wow. Now they're just making up names <laughs> for awards to give them. How long can we make these award names? The last half is just gibberish, but turns us to no. <laughs> <laughs> we have Edgar Allan Poe Awards, 1992, winner for the Edgar of Best Motion Picture. Uh, Fangoria Chainsaw Ooh, Awards, 1991, nice. winner of a Chainsaw Award, Best Actor, Actress, Best Studio, and Big Budget Film, Best Screenplay, and Best Soundtrack. Now, was... Uh, I'd have to look at other movies in 1991 to see if like that counted as big, big budget because it just seems not even close to big budget. Like 19 million is considered pretty low nowadays. When you well, I mean, an indie with, film, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, even w- when you account for inflation, which uh, what were we looking at? Like 30, 38 million, roughly. Mil- yeah, something like that. 38 million. You're still like. On the cusp of being a low budget, but not considered high budget, you're in this like middle it's, ground. It's all relative, I guess. I don't know. So uh, that, it wasn't as big as Terminator Two in budget. So oh yeah, for sure. Film. You know, everything's uh, either the king of the world or the slums. <laughs> we have best screenplay, and then finally nominated for best soundtrack. Then we have the Fargo Island Film Festival, 1991. They were nominated for best film, Golden Globes winner, Golden Globe best performance by an actress in a motion picture drama. Jodie Foster, obviously. Uh, just, you know, as a little reminder of who we're talking about. You go, girl. <laughs> Nominee for a Golden Globe for Best Picture, mo- uh, best Motion Picture Drama and Best Director Motion Picture. Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Drama and Best Screenplay Motion Picture. Golden Screen, Germany, 1991. Winner for a Golden Screen. That's it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the awkward pause. <laughs> Jupiter Awards, okay. 1991. We have a winner for a Jupiter Award, Best International Actress, Jodie Foster. Here's an interesting one. We have the Italian National Syndicate of Film Journalists, 1992, nominated for a Silver Ribbon for Best Foreign Director. I'd like to see just an entire wall of all the Sounds of the Lambs awards and just see how far it goes. I don't think I have enough bookcases in my my studio here to fill those. London Critics Circle Film Awards 1992. They were nominated for Film of the Year, Actor of the Year, Actress of the Year, and Director of the Year. 
National Board of Review, 1991. They won the NBR for Best Film, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Top 10 Films. National Film Preservation Board. It hit that in 2011. Congratulations. Proud of you. National Society of Film Critics, USA, 1992. Nominated for a SNSFC Award. Best Actress and Best Director. Moving along, we got some online awards, both in 2000, uh, this year. What do you know? <laughs> online Film and Te- Television Association, two, 2021. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm so used to saying 2000 that I was like, wait a minute. That's wait a minute. Not, I no, got that's this. This is not right. Mm, uh, I was on too much of a roll. I had to get stumped somewhere. Exactly. Right? It's I okay. Did, I still believe in your terms. Uh, it won this year the off to... Film Hall of Fame uh, for the character Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal the Cannibal. And then once again, that uh, happened back in 1997 where it was Best Motion Picture. Uh, People's Choice Awards, 1992, winner for Favorite Dramatic Motion Picture. And then finally, we have... Yeah, I'm just going to say this one's the last one. PGA Awards 1992 winner for Outstanding Producer of Theatrical Motion Pictures, Edward Saxon, Kenneth Oot, and Ron Bosman. You lied. There's another page of awards. <laughs> I mean, I could throw out. We got Satellite Awards 2007 uh, nominated for Satellite Award Best DVD Extras. There are so many awards, people. The Writers Guild of America. Oh, and he I, didn't even say all the awards. I didn't. Just I so skipped many. so many. I, I said the most notable ones, some of the fun ones. We had some he fun said, banter. Now yeah. we're going to move on to Kyle, who's going to tell He's, us the wonderful cast. He said before movie. he came over, he said, ah, oh, I just need the awards printed. I didn't know I was going to have to cut down a forest <laughs> with the, print the awards. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Back to the fields, parents. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, now that Terrence is done with the awards, I need to get on with the cast. And that's the end of the podcast. We're in an hour. <laughs> Stay tuned for yeah. part two. <laughs> Lucky thing about the cast, it never, you know, it kind of stays the same for me because I trim it down whenever I want to. And Terrence has to do either a mile of awards or one page. Never really know. But anyways, let's move on here. We, of course, have the legendary Anthony Hawkins. He needs no introduction. Basically, you know, if you want to list the top ten living actors actors today, Anthony Hawkins is in there. Maybe the top, maybe not, but he's in there. That's just that's law in my book. But anyways, Anthony Hawkins plays the Doctor Hannibal Lecter, also known as Hannibal the Cannibal. You'll of course recognize him from such films as currently Odin in the MCU films and the uh, MCU Thor films. In my bad. Um, also in one of my personal favorite films, The Edge. He also played Alfred Hitchcock in the Alfred Hitchcock biopic movie, Hitchcock. Mm, yep. um, most recently, he was in the film where he, uh, The Father, where he suffers from Alzheimer's, where he plays a character who suffers from Alzheimer's. Very good movie. And uh, one of uh, Jimbo's personal favorites, uh, Meet Joe Black. So overall, um, Anthony Hawkins' legendary career, everything he's in is... You're forgetting The Elephant Man. The Elephant that Man. That movie. Westworld. Or mm, <laughs> Elephant Thanks, Man right. was a great movie. Yeah, or uh, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula and mm. some of the other films. Like Anthony Hawkins is had a long, legendary career. It's amazing he's still working today and uh, love everything he's in. I, I, I love love him and everything that he's in. Not necessarily. He's been in some bad films, too, like Transformers the, <laughs> the last night. <laughs> but still, Anthony Hawkins is kind of amazing. Um, next up, we have Jodie Foster, who plays Agent Clarice Starling. Um, uh, Judy Foster also a great actor in her own right been in many 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 films and uh, has an excellent career that continues to go on to this day and uh, might make the top 10 list for a lot of people too no personally mine definitely 
Um, you'll recognize her from movies such as uh, Ronald Reagan's favorite the Taxi Driver, um, and movies such as Contact Aliens, and The Accused, Flight Plan, Inside Man, and The Beaver. So, uh, Jodie Foster, great actor, love her to death. What? <laughs> No, good, good, good. So let's, I was on unhealthy eye contact go. and have a thing like, oh, I said beaver. No, no, no. It's a good movie. And next up we have... <laughs> I was just thinking of the zombie beavers or whatever. Zombie beavers. Zombie beavers. No, no, the, the beaver film, like Mel Gibson has like a puppet beaver in its... I know what you're talking yeah, about Yeah, it's, it's a crazy movie. Oh, I love that one too. But anyways, moving on. Next up we have... Ted Levine playing Buffalo Bill himself. The uh, Buffalo, not himself. <laughs> 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 Ted Levine is actually Buffalo Bill. Um, Buffalo Bill, um, the central antagonist of the film, if 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 not Hannibal Lecter. Um, anyways, you'll recognize Ted Levine from movies like Shutter Island, where he played like the um, kind of bashful prison that's good, guard. That's a good movie too. Good movie, yeah. He's also an American Gangster and uh, the Fast and the Furious. He also had some, he also was a recurring character on the Monk TV series for a while, I believe. And uh, overall, uh, you know, actor, steady worker, and a great actor, all in all. Next up, we have Anthony Heald, who plays Dr. Frederick Chilton, the, um, the kind of evil therapist over Hannibal's domain. Um, you'll recognize some movies such as Deep Rising, um, 8mm, Accepted, and A Time to Kill. Good movie, too. Good movie as well. Yeah, a couple I, good movies, actually. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. So, definitely, uh, everyone in this cast actually seems to have, like, you know, like, they may not appear in many films, but the most films they appeared in are pretty good. <laughs> Next up, we have Frankie um, Fison, who plays Barney Matthews. You may recognize him from Coming to America, White Chicks, mm. and Maximum Overdrive. And uh, Barney Matthews was the, um, the, uh, the uh, basically, the kind of the prison uh, orderly staff who yeah. was basically a... Uh, Loosely a friend of Hannibal, I guess. He also is a recurring character in both the sequel and the prequel films. Um, That's true, yeah. Yep. Next up, we have Diane Baker, who plays Senator Ruth Martin. Um, she is a legendary actress in her own rights, playing a lot of movies in the 60s and 50s, such as uh, Marnie in 64, Mirage in 65, Journey to the Center of Earth, Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1959, and The Prize in 1963. So, um, uh, a uh, great actress in her own field definitely was popular in that, in uh, especially in the sixties and fifties, and uh, makes a good uh, small but noteworthy appearance in this film. Algar, and lastly for what my uh, my cast in was uh, Scott Glenn plays Jack Crawford. You know you recognize him in such films as Urban Cowboy, Silverado, The Hunt for Red October, and The Right Stuff. And that is the uh, cast. Hunt for for the, did you do the uh, the lady that played Catherine? Lady played Catherine. No, I did not do that one. I can look it up there. Okay. Because okay. I thought she did a really well, good job in this, too. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. I need to get that as well. Quickly, yeah. Kyle. And, and TikTok, also, TikTok. also who played Precious. <laughs> <laughs> the dog. Yeah, yeah the dog, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did look up the dog, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> I'd look up who played Catherine. So, yeah. Terrence Wallace. Oh, uh, Brooke Smith uh, played Catherine. Um, you'll recognize her from such movies and TV shows, such as um, Grace. She was in uh, Grey's Anatomy since 2005. Um, the TV show Big Sky and a lot of other TV shows like um, and movies like uh, oh, the TV show Ray Donovan. Another movie of Anthony Hawkins, Bad Company, and she's in the Bates Motel series. Well, not so long going, but uh, yeah. So, so, so Terrence, go ahead and give us the synopsis of this movie. The synopsis. There is a serial killer at large um, and a young rookie FBI agent is sent to converse with an intellectual who is also under high security guard in prison 
known as Hannibal Lecter. And together, they try to find the serial killer. More or less, I mean, the movie more or less kind of insinuates he knew the whole time. And he's just helping her turn the gears in her head as she tries to solve the crime. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he's a serial killer himself. Exactly, yeah. Hannibal. Uh, Hannibal well, not, not only that, but I mean, he's, he's also a very intelligent Now, person. let me ask you a question. I, I forgot what his credentials were. Where do you think the name came from, The Silence of the Lambs? Because it ties into the movie. If you, if you, if you watch the movie, it ties right into the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I'm that, thinking about the story that, that, about her dreaming. About yeah, yeah. Her so no, her, her, when she opens up, she it's not a dream. When she's talking to Hannibal about She her has a traumatizing childhood. moment of her childhood, which Hannibal is very interested in. Yes. Um, because that's part of the deal. Like, they have a whole deal, and he's like, okay, you tell me about yourself, and I will tell you what about I know Buffalo Bill. about yeah. Buffalo Bill. And then, so at one point, he finally goes there into telling him what happened i believe this is when he's already moved this is near the is it near the end of the movie when oh, she yeah. gives that story this is actually yeah. probably the second last scene right before yeah. he's moved over yeah so um yeah they have this conversation where uh long story short when she was a, a, a child she lost her father very traumatizing and then she was on a a ranch with her uncle um to which she heard uh screaming she looked into one of the barns found out it was the sheep um or the lambs um they were being slaughtered, I believe. Mm-hmm. And that traumatized her. She ran away. She grabbed one and, of the lambs. Uh, yeah, she, she grabbed one, and uh, but couldn't get far with it because mm-hmm. it was just too heavy. Um, and so she just constantly has nightmares about the screaming lambs. And so uh, Hannibal's whole jab is like, oh, you want to save this person from Buffalo Bill, so then you can silence the lambs in your dreams. Um, which more or was less to stop which was really cool because at yeah. the end I think it was, is it when he's on the phone with her or the last time soon and he yeah. says yeah. he says and how about the lambs have they stopped screaming yet yeah. so therefore like you your dreams turned yeah the silence of the lambs I thought that was you know Hannibal Lecter is one of those people that he kind of feels for her man I you know because she's like he's not going to hurt me in this movie you know because he's he's like yeah he wants to see he's, he's clearly like, he's, infatuated with her he is it's, you know. it's not an infatuation it's more of an interest he he's a man who doesn't like boredom and when he finds someone of interest he likes to poke and prod right. which is what he does the whole movie i mean you yes. can you can tell that he immediately take he almost loses interest but then you know she does a couple things that piques his interest so then he continues his interaction with Clarice. Well, we should point out that Buffalo Bill has kidnapped the senator's daughter. Yeah. Uh, one of the senator's daughter, and that's why they send Jodie Foster in to try to coerce him to help. And when he first goes to see her, you know, in, in his little cell at the end of the hall, you see her just walking down there by herself, and she gets there, and he's just sitting there. And, and I thought it was really neat that every they only I think they only have interaction four times during the whole movie. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Even Anthony Hopkins himself only shows up in, like, maybe right. minutes. But every, if you notice, every time that they're together... The reflection of the other one is seen, you know, is seen in like the glass. Like when Anthony, you're looking at Julie Foster, you see Anthony Hopkins' reflection, you know, in the glass. I thought that was really well done, cinematography wise and stuff. Um, But she just wants to help save this. She knows she's running out of time, but every time she goes to prod Hannibal Lecter, he's always like, "Well, you got to tell me something about yourself." She's like, "We don't have time for this." He's like, 
Well, then that was part of the agreement. And, you know, she tried to say, oh, well, you know, if you help us, you can go to this island where you can go out on this beach. But it, well, was it? he's like, oh, yeah, the disease control planet or <laughs> yeah. the island or whatever. And he, he, she's like, well, you can walk on the beach. She's like, not all of it, just some of it. And, you know, that's a real island. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll talk about it. So uh, another interesting thing, just to kind of tie it in, just because it does fit in with what we're talking about, the, um, the on-screen chemistry between... Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster was more insinuated by the fact that they did not talk or interact while filming this. She was scared of him. She was scared of him, and it's really funny because at the end, she lets him know. She's like, I'm I'm scared of you. And he goes, well, I'm scared of you! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, that's an interesting um, sort of interaction there. And that, that also goes... The, the same with uh, uh, Jodie Foster and the actor who played Buffalo Bill. He did really well. They job. also did not interact while on set, uh, more or less, to create that suspense within themselves uh, to be uh, insinuated in their acting while filming the movie, which yeah. I think is very interesting. And, yeah, and another huge aspect of this film, I don't want to Smith yet, but also like there's a, there's a this is a very very dark and in adult movie, Rob. Obviously, obviously, if you've seen it, especially, but there's also a heavy degree of uh, of uh, Sexism and what like the fears of being a woman in a in a male dominated field too. Oh yeah, as yeah, well. yeah. Like it's it's entirely dominated like that. Like the degrees of which uh, like Buffalo Bill is essentially um, considers himself a transsexual or something mm-hmm. like that. Or, or, uh, trans- well, that, that that's that that was actually, that was actually one of the huge uh, tidbits because there there was a lot there was some backlash uh, about it and um, you know the uh, both the director and the author have came out and going no 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 he didn't like see himself as that like he yeah. Uh, he saw himself as like something else, but couldn't like sort of label it. But he definitely, he definitely he confused his own identity in that sense. But he, yeah. he used the wrong labels for it, and perhaps wasn't properly written in the time frame for understanding specifically that transgender people. But the but. The, the movie did go out and say uh, they even went to say uh, I believe Clary's had an assessment where she's like, well, he doesn't he doesn't really fit the profile of. You know, yeah. you know, someone who's transgender. Well, Hannibal Lecter actually says there's there's three or four different types. It was either him or the uh, uh, FBI general. Remember, he says, well, there's there's different layers. There's I think it was Hannibal Lecter. He's like, there's one that that's going the full length transgender. Room. There's one that's stuck in between. They don't know what to do. There's some of them that think that they don't know what they're doing. Um, he laid out the whole groundwork for it. Yeah. I just can't yeah. remember. I watched it last it, night, it, but it, I can't it, remember the exact wording. His, basically, long story short, you know, he goes. Uh, Hannibal confirms that Buffalo Bill's not transgender. Yeah, he's not. He's like he's on one. Of the, he 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 might um, uh, convey that he is, or like uh, he might suspect he himself is, but he's not really a transgender yeah, person. It's more of um, um, uh, I, I forgot what what the, yeah. the terms he used, but in short, it, it was you know they did clearly state at least in the movie. Once again, haven't read the books, but in the movie they did clearly state, hey. Uh, he's not transgender, so then it doesn't like it's not a movie that says, "Hey, these people are bad." Yeah, but even then, further, like it keeps going, going further. Just like you know, uh, uh, Hannibal Lecter keeps going into like how um, how men treat Clary Starling. Like even like the first yeah. interaction, as soon as Clarice leaves, she is uh, sexually assaulted in a very um, disgusting Except, manner. Yeah. And uh, Hannibal oh, Lecter yeah, takes that yeah. as point where he talks a man into committing suicide. Well, that's when he, that's when he calls right. He starts yelling at him and he's like, look, you don't want to trust me here. You need to see doctor or whoever, yeah. you know, the help work on my case or something. And you need yeah. to see him and pull up these records or whatever. So um, this, 
The notes was over 25 pages long when I printed them. I bet. I cut it down to like... a lot of movie. Nine to 11. (laughs) So... um, I have a couple tidbits I'll throw out too. As we go through this, these are obviously out of the order of the movie. So you probably, hopefully, have seen this movie. Um, We'll just start talking about it and we can ad lib as we go along. So uh, Jodie Foster claims that during the first meeting between Dr. Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Sterling, Sir Anthony Hopkins' mocking of her southern accent was improvised on the spot. Foster's horrified reaction was genuine since she felt personally attacked. She later thanked Hopkins for generating such an honest reaction. So I thought that was pretty interesting that he just made it up on the spot. Like, <laughs> so Anthony Hopkins is known to ad-lib, for sure. Yeah. Um, he also studied a lot of serial killers for this movie. He visited prisons, studied convicted murderers, and he was even present during some court hearings concerning gruesome murders and serial killings. I think all the actors really went above and beyond as far as just research for their roles. Oh, yeah, um, the FBI. Anthony did. Hopkins looked into the serial killers and murderers. Uh, Jodie Foster actually went to an FBI academy, and so did... Um, uh, the gentleman who played the uh, uh, her superior. Oh, um, uh, I think it was Jack Crawford, wasn't it? Scott yep. Lynn? Yeah, Jack Scott Crawford. Crawford. And uh, he was actually, uh, he's like, I will never see certain certain things. Like, I've learned things I wish I didn't know. Yeah. Definitely, <laughs> uh, you definitely dive into the darkest parts of humanity there. And well, I think it was even... Um, because Jody, he was side-by-side with the current FBI director. Uh, yeah. I get, I'll get to it later, but um, the, the, oh, here it is right here. that uh, Jodie Foster spent time with the FBI agent Mary Ann Krause prior to filming. She gave Jodie Foster the idea of uh, Clarice standing by her cry, crying because sometimes she says that the work just becomes so overwhelming that it is a good way to get rid of an emotional release. So I thought that was really... Um, good information given to Jodie Foster for this movie. Um, when they were going to move Lecter to Baltimore or from Baltimore, they they planned to dress him in yellow and orange jumpsuit, like you know, person yeah. you see. But Anthony Hopkins like, look, you know, he went to the director and costume. Director, like, if you dress me in all white, he said, it's just going to stand out better and it'll be unsettling for people to see me dressed. And I thought I looked at him, I was like, man, he looks creepy in all white. Right? You know what Absolutely. I mean? Uh, Very good call. You know, but you know where he got it from, right? He was he's afraid of dentist. <laughs> that's what they think he got over there. And that's definitely like when you think about of gruesome actors and people reading inside your mouth, that's definitely makes you think of Hannibal. Right. But another thing I think like I, I just realized we're kind of gonna be over to is like Hannibal Lecter is um an iconic horror villain in his own right, in a way where like he, he it it feels odd to put him in place, but he still stands alongside like Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees in my mind. But you know, you, you watch this movie and and, and you're thinking this guy just seems like a normal guy. You know, I mean, you, you hear yeah. stuff, but he's very intellectual. Mm-hmm. And and it's until later in the movie, you're like, well, this guy is just crazy. I think it's also like for like part of the uniqueness of his monstrosity is that like, um, I, I think uh, you might get into later in the trivia, but like one of the characteristics of the fact that uh, makes him so terrifying is that there's actually, there's no reason why he's a psychopath necessarily. Well, there, there's even saying that um, if you remember, they said that when he killed the one guy, uh, when he attacked, I think it was the, a nurse or something, that his blood pressure didn't get over 84 or his pulse rate didn't Except, get over yeah, 84. Yeah. And if you later in the movie, when he kills the ambulance driver or whatever, when they're giving yeah. it, it, it's, it stays, it's the same. Yeah. It stays the same. Yeah. So, but we'll get to that part. Yeah. Uh, with only. 24 minutes and 52 seconds of screen time, Anthony Hopkins' performance in this movie is the second shortest to ever win an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role. Oh, wow. With David Niven in separate tables from 1958 beating him at 23 minutes and 20 or 39 seconds. So Looks like we got a movie to add to the list. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to see it. Another time. Um, another asp- inspiration for Anthony Hopkins was his friend, 
um, back in London who rarely blinked when speaking. Speaking, so it, he said it unnerved everybody around him. So you know, you're not not blinking, just talking. You know. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, so that'd be pretty crazy too. Jimbo does it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's something else that you may have not picked up on that when characters are talking to Jodie Foster, uh, they talk directly into the camera. So they're following the camera as they're talking. So you're actually getting her perspective. But every time that she is speaking, um, camera- you see her talking. You know, it's not from yeah. her point of view. She's looking off camera kind of like, you know what I mean? So you get the feeling that you're in her shoes for most of the movie. And also like the point of the perspective, like, the camera's also kind of like bearing down on her, almost like a threatening posture. In both in both her perspective and uh, like from the, the perspective of the people walking at her, everything's kind of uh, uh, framed in a threat in a threatening manner to a point. Yeah, there's kind of well, especially like when she's walking down framing. the hallway yeah. by herself to yeah. see Lecter. So so this really showcases like yeah the the, the cinematography of uh, uh, Tak Fujimoto and just a lot of different unique framing techniques, uh, using techniques of an actor looking to a camera, which is not used all the time. Um, and, you know, for, like, you know, this this perspective and almost um, in certain ways you can tell sort of the, the intimidating difference between, you know, Hannibal Lecter and Clarice. And there's even a shot when she's going through the FBI Academy just to insinuate, you know, she's a woman in a man's world where it's just... A bunch of men towering over her, and then you know, there's tiny little Joni Foster, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just goes to show like how much of a master class of filmmaking this truly is. Because like you can't, you can't even attribute any to any one person. You can't say it was just Jodie Foster, it was just Anthony Hawkins, or it was just the director, or just a cinematographer. Like it's one of those things. Like every person brought their A game and made this film um, so cohesive in its theme and narrative that is a. Uh, Truly a spectacle to behold. Well, oh, another yeah. thing is, um, we all know that she was running away from stuff when she, in her childhood, you know, from the, and I think it was very interesting that they opened the scene with her running through the forest, uh, the forest and stuff, true, because yeah. that is a flashback, direct call to of her younger days, which I read later on, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was her idea, Jodie Foster's idea to put that in there because they wanted to open the scene with like a FBI raid. Yeah. Um, where you know, remember when he, it, it was a training exercise where he pulls the yeah, gun on the yeah. back of his? She's like, "Did you not look behind you?" Which plays a part later on in the movie with Buffalo yep. Bill. They so. initialize that scene in a really right. good way. But uh, yeah, you're right. Even that, that, yeah, that first scene where she's running through the forest, like, and you just like, like she's ascending, but they manage to slope the camera, so it almost looks like she's running at like a a, a, a flat angle, almost, almost running at a flat um, surface. And even the music is playing almost a tragic and dour note. To uh, almost like a tragedy going on of a horror movie, and yeah, it was it like really... she was always struggling uphill. Is yeah, exactly. Yeah, always yeah. struggling uphill, always being put down, even when she's trying to rise above it all mm-hmm. in a, such a way. So, like one of those things where it's just like, oh man, that's just bravo, so good, good job. And you wouldn't <laughs> notice that unless you watched the whole movie either. So, yeah. but once and, you like, I watched it the second time. You're like, oh well, no, no, this yeah. you see a lot Start more things. catching things. Like, on things like, right. like oh, this is just made for film analysis and film critics. Because everyone can look into every single little aspect. Like, oh, they made the right call. You know. Yeah, the uh, real uh, real life FBI's behavioral science unit assessed in the making of this movie. Also, they received full the production received full cooperation from the FBI as they saw it as a potential recruiting tool to hire more female agents. So, uh, wow, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I how many women honestly watch everything Agent Clarice Sterling goes through and things like I want to do that <laughs> I mean, to be honest. Well, I, I mean, 
I mean, it is a serious undertaking, an admirable goal, but also, like, watching that film, the last thing I'd want to be was, is Clarice. <laughs> uh, the yeah. Silence of the Lambs was inspired by the real-life relationship between University of Washington criminology professor and profiler Bob Keppel and serial killer Ted Bundy. Bundy helped Keppel investigate the Green River serial killings in Washington. Bundy was executed January 24, 1989. The Green River killings were finally solved in 2001 when Gary Ridgway was arrested. On November 5, 2003, in a Seattle courtroom, Ridgway pled guilty to 48 counts of aggravated first-degree murder. Oof. Yeah, so... Jeez. Um, uh, when Jonathan Dim filmed the scene when Lecter and Starling first meet, Sir Anthony Amis said that he should look directly at the cameras and pan into his line of sight. He felt Lecter should be portrayed as knowing everything. Yeah. Which done a well job. It really, yeah, feels that way the and whole time. And as the terror of the scene of everything, yeah, it was like all knowing, this scary, mean, like all movie like recouped its budget in its first week of its release. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Three times over. <laughs> Almost um, in the weekend. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins' uh, agent sent him a copy in London of. Uh, uh, so he said he was going to send him a script of the Silence of the Lambs, and he thought it was going to be a children's movie. <laughs> <laughs> Such a carefree, the Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Ooh, how enjoyable, enjoyable. Yeah, you think there'd be a rainbow in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, with studying the character play, Anthony Hopkins knows similar characteristics in reptiles. Reptiles only blink when they want to and do it consciously. Therefore, in the movie, Hopkins only blinks in special moments and very consciously. So that always adds to the fear factor or whatever. Um... Ted Levine, who played, of course, Buffalo Bill, um, when he found out during the scouting for the house that he was going to be portrayed in the movie, discovered it uh, the house being uh, in the town where he grew up. But not only that, but it was literally next door to the house of his high school girlfriend. So, wow, small world. <laughs> right. Um, Anthony Hopkins saw Lecter as uh, similar to HAL 9000 in 2001, A Space Odyssey. A highly complex, highly intelligent, highly logical killing machine who seems to know everything going on around him. Um, Pretty great. Jody Jody Foster actually uh, first read the Thomas uh, Harris novel. She tried to buy the rights herself, but only to find out that Gene Hackman had beaten her to it. <laughs> so Gene Hackman owned the rights to this. Gene Hackman, all the book. In. <laughs> yeah, um, he was a great actor too, though. Loved it up. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hagman uh, planned to direct this movie and play either Dr. Hannibal Lecter or Jack Crawford. He withdrew after watching a clip of himself in Mississippi Burning in 1988 at the 61st Annual Academy Awards, which made him uneasy about taking more violent roles. Mm-hmm. So have you ever seen Mississippi Burning? I haven't seen it. I haven't I have seen not. it, but that makes sense to me. I mean, that, that's so, something I can't be comfortable with personally. But go yeah. ahead. Sorry. No, the, the, another interesting thing about the director was... Um, Interestingly enough, during breaks in filming, uh, Jonathan Dim, he basically found the time to make his own documentary. Uh, His cousin Bobby chronicled the exploits of a director's real-life cousin who was a priest working out of Harlem. So it's it's interesting that even when he wasn't working, he was working. Right. Um, Also, let's see here. Um, oh, he uh, when Ted Talley was writing the screenplay for this movie, he suggested Jodie Foster, but Foster had been lobbying hard for the part. Uh, but when Jonathan Dean was hired to direct, he wanted Michelle Pfeiffer to play uh, Clarice instead. Pfeiffer turned it down because Orion Pictures wasn't willing to pay the two million dollars for which she asked. 
Dean then agreed to meet Foster. He hired her after only one meeting because he said he could see her strength and determination for the part, and he felt that was perfect for Clarice. Hmm. Uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins described his voice for Dr. Hannibal Lecter as a combination of Truman Capote and Catherine Hepburn. (laughs) (laughs) I can see it. I can see it. Uh, To everyone's surprise, uh, reclusive uh, reclusive author Thomas Harrison, all the Oscar recipients, a case of wine. Um... Clarice Starling was chosen by the American Film Institute as the sixth greatest movie hero out of 50, the highest ranked female on the list, and Dr. Hannibal Lecter was chosen as number one greatest movie villain out of 50. Now, we can park right there and talk about that all we want, because being the the greatest movie villain of all time... Greatest movie villain. uh, You've got a lot of villains. I mean, it's obviously M. Bison from Street Fighter, right? I mean, mean, you you got Darth Vader... Yeah, I mean, you could go on and on and on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, present business. I, I think, you know, like I think as far as just like presence throughout the movie, possibly. You know what I mean? Like, like there are iconic and notable villains, but then there's also like sort of what the villain also brings to the table, and like each villain sort of has their own thing that they they bring and how they interact with its protagonists and stuff like that. Like, it, it's so it's it's an interesting sort of thing to think about and it's almost hard to even choose who would be the quote unquote best villain just because they're all so different in yeah. how and especially when you're looking at like you'd almost have to at the very least categorize it by the type of movie yeah. because you know obviously a psychological horror villain is going to be super different from a sci-fi villain or right. a, a comic book hero a, villain yeah, like, yeah exactly you know, like a Marvel or movie Sauron villain. or somebody like yeah, that exactly. you know what I mean fantasy yeah, very film. different Harry yeah. Potter so like yeah I, I feel <laughs> you know I feel comfortable saying they, they occupy the same company of you know high quality character villains but yeah. to say like one's better than the other it's just like you know it's I would you know, go ahead and say of psychological thrillers yes I mean it's, it's, it's very yeah, common yeah so you know I see like you know different strokes or different folks it's like it's to each their own to a, to a huge degree on even the psychological horror angle or just like, you know, I would say like, you know, like, you know, Hellraiser or something like that could be, you know, up in that kind of, or Pinhead could be up in that, uh, you know, category for me of psychological horror that, you know, deeply disturbs me. Um, but I don't feel comfortable saying one's better than the other necessarily. Yeah. You know, but that's also my personal. That'd be a hard rank to, to do. Maybe that'll be the next question for the next episode. That's right, you guys. <laughs> You're just bringing on me. What's yeah. your top two right now? Yeah. Ah. Um, <laughs> Within, uh, let's see. oh yeah, like I said, uh, Hopkins and Foster only shares four scenes of this movie. Um, within ten years of the release of this movie, the building used for the exterior of uh, Lecter's Asylum had been shut down and demolished. Footage from this movie was reused to create the establishing shot used in Red Dragon in 2002. Yeah. Further on, Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. 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 <laughs> Judy Foster. It's Australian for me. The Judy Foster. <laughs> The Jodie Foster stated in, in Inside Story of the Silence of the Lambs that this is one of her favorite movies of her own. Mm-hmm. So she actually really enjoys it herself. That's great. The movie's line, a census, a census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice shanty. Was voted the number 21 movie quote of American Film Institute out of 100. That, 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 um, that was improv. Like, well, the, the end part in particular, where he's like, "Well, it's uh, different." The father beans and the nice chanting. <laughs> yeah. oh, and that got on the producer or director's nerves. He said it was okay yeah. for us that he improvised that it just got old. But uh, one, the, one thing, um, and I, it's in the notes somewhere, but I'm gonna throw it in here is the movie poster. Um, you know, the the it shows the moth or whatever. Yeah. Judy Foster and the moth. The 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 white of the moth is actually like seven naked ladies or nine naked ladies, and I had never noticed yeah. that until I, I looked at that last night, and I was like, 
Huh. Wow. Because uh, I thought it was just a, a moth with the, the death head or whatever. Yeah, you know no, I, mean? I didn't know. Also, yeah. to piggyback off of that, the uh, the moths that they use in the film, they were seeing if they can actually use those moths. Uh, but the moths that they had were currently going through some kind of... Uh, there was a disease rampant among the moths, so they were dying. So the ones that they had in containment uh, where they were. Yeah. They're like, they were like, well, typically, you know, we, we can, you know, offer to uh, let sets use insects and stuff. Um, for this kind of thing, but right now we just don't have them on hand. So they actually took a moth and then they dressed them to look like. Yeah, I have it in here somewhere where they actually they got the royal treatment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Suits painted on and all that. (laughs) Uh, But also, the first uh, moth cocoon found in one of the victim's throats was made from a combination of tootsie rolls and gummy bears. So if it was swallowed, it would still be edible. (laughs) That's great. Whatever it is, I think I see. Yep. When a tootsie root. <laughs> yep. When Ted Levine auditioned to play Buffalo Bill, Brooke Smith, who plays Catherine Martin, was so impressed by his acting that she asked him what he did to get such a performance. Levine admitted he didn't know what to do, so he drank a lot of coffee. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah. makes so much more sense when you watch the film, too. Right. <laughs> Yep. Um, most of the movie was shot in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was chosen for its large variety of landscapes and architecture. Some of the movie's interior scenes, including the Baltimore jail scene in the beginning and the ballroom scene of Dr. Hannibal Lecter in his cage, were shot in Soldiers and Seizures Memorial located in the Fifth Avenue in the Oakland area of Pittsburgh. Part of Judy's deal for this movie was was that Orion Pictures would allow her to direct a movie. She directed Little Man Tate in 1991. So, just after her, too. This movie was originally scheduled for release in the fall of 1990. Orion Pictures delayed its release to late January 1991 so they could focus on promoting Dances with Wolves for Oscar consideration. This Did you movie, like Dances with Wolves? Never seen it, actually. I, I watched it, but I don't remember it. It's long. I watched it when I was... Like, it's a lot of movie to commit to. It's I, long. I, I, was, I was a kid when I attempted to watch it. It's long. And I was like, <laughs> I, my concept of what I thought it was and then what it actually ended up being were two totally different things, and I'm pretty sure I didn't finish it. Doesn't Dixie and Fools <laughs> still hold the longest run in a theater? The what? I believe it's still longest, longest run of being played in theaters. What? Dances with Fools in really? 1990. I believe uh, it still does. Ben Hur has a... L- l- it was in for like weeks. Uh, I got it in my notes. I right. want to say Dances with Wolves was literally in for like years or something this like that. In, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd have to check. Uh, but I believe it had the record at some point. Um, yeah. But anyways, um, it was but anyways, it was pushed back so they could focus on Dancing with Wolves. Um, this movie, and of course Dancing with Wolves, won all five major Academy Awards. A notable exception to the conventional wisdom that movies released early in the calendar year were forgotten by Oscar time. <laughs> when Clarice visits Hannibal Lecter in his new facility, Lecter insists she continue telling him about her child as part of the agreement. Clarice reluctantly agrees and continues her story about running away. Midway through her confession, she mentions taking a lamb with her. If one listens closely after she says, I thought if I could save just one, a distant sound of something being dropped can be heard in the background. A crewman <laughs> dropped a wrench during filming. Jonathan Dean panicked, thinking it would ruin the scene completely. However, Foster remained in character and continued the story, ultimately convincing Dean to keep the footage. After cut was said, Foster turned her head to the crew and yelled, What was that? 
<laughs> but how do you stay in character? You know, you know, you kind of we're eating, and somebody drops something. You just over there like, hey, what was that? <laughs> yeah, everyone turns around and looks, but like it's it's. But same time, like if you're a trained actor, you know to commit to just staying in character all time. Commit all to the bit. You got to commit to it. If you're not in it, you're out. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you just I respect that. You know, Jodie Foster, great actor, and of course Anthony Hawkins, a legendary actor. According to the director Jonathan Demme, there were 300 applicants for the role of Clarice Starling, including Meg Ryan and Michelle. Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Thank you. That turned down the role because of the disturbing subject matter. Brooke Smith, who ended up playing Catherine Martin, and Nicole Hittman read for the part. Next up, we have Gene Siskel was the only mainstream critic critic to give the Best Picture winner a negative review. Siskel disliked the elements of the camp and gothic about the film and cited Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, 1986, as a more honest depiction of a sociopath or psychopath my bad the, one of the most I guess one of the most shocking moments of this movie is um, James James Gum's uh, dance was not included in the original draft of the screenplay although it appears in the novel it was added in the assistant Ted Levine who thought the scene was essential in defining the character um, if you remember where he's dancing yeah he's all dressed up he's dancing and you know he's like got the camera stuff from and then he backs up and, yeah. and opens like his robe and you're like Oh, well, then. Well, yeah, but it was very. Um, now, to me, I don't know if that was uh, part of the female bodysuit he had made and sewed together. Uh, um, no, it wasn't, because that was up on display when. Uh, I didn't know if he just had more than one. Uh, it looked like he was just working on the one, and then um, Clarice was making her rounds, you know, going door to door trying to. So it looked like he was cast that, castrated, you know, possibly something like even. Yeah, that's yeah. What I was like, I was like, uh, so that was a shocking. One. I I wasn't expecting that when I was uh, watching it. So be prepared tough. if you do watch this. If you see him start dancing in front of a camera, and it slowly start backing away, you may want to skip <laughs> a few scenes. Yeah, this is a definitely a, uh, a a shocking and grotesque film in many respects. Well, I did a, mention it's rated R at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, for Ronchi. <wrong> <laughs> Oh, here it is. The pattern on the moth's back in the movie uh, poster is not the natural pattern of the Death Head's hawk moth. It is, in fact, Salvador Dali's in Voluptuous Moors, a picture of seven naked women made to look like a human skull. So, yep. Pretty cool. So Weird, but cool. Speaking of interesting, like, I, I don't know, uh, crazy scenes that happen in the movie, one of the most sort of uh, the climactic scene in the end, the uh, night vision goggle scene. It was a great scene. scene. So, mm. interestingly enough, that was... So, so, in the basement where Sterling's getting stalked by Buffalo Bill um, and all that, that, that scene took 22 hours to film. That, that little scene of, of, uh, of all that happening because it, it, it was they wanted to add intensity. They wanted to make sure they had the tension correct and everything. Um, they also wanted uh, to maintain the belief that uh, this was... Uh, the point of the film that Buffalo Bill was resigned to his fate and stuff like that. Um, it, so it's just interesting that, you know, such a short scene, uh, but also the climactic scene just took so long to film. Yeah, definitely yeah. one of the densest scenes of the movie of just having, you know, to film all those little individual shots and night vision and get them all just right. Yeah. It's uh, incredibly uh, demanding. So bravo to the cinematographers again, all the filmmakers. Yeah. 
So another fun fact, uh, Ed Harris turned down the role of Jack Crawford because he didn't find the role interesting enough <laughs> and would have rather played Dr. Hannibal Lecter. That would have been a very <laughs> different movie. <laughs> yeah. Right. But do you know that Anthony Hopkins viewed this as his last-ditch effort to break out in Hollywood? Although he had acted in movies and on television since the 60s, he had not reached A-list status, nor had the attained the prestige for which he had been hoping for with his screen acting career. He went on to say that if this, if the film hadn't garnered the, his career boost he was seeking, he would have then quit his acting career in Hollywood and focused all his efforts instead on the British stage. Ultimately, the film was a major critical uh, and commercial success, instantly making him a household name. His performance in the film earned him his first Academy Award nomination for Best Actor, for which he won, immediately launching him into the A-list status in Hollywood. As of 2020, Hopkins has received four more Academy Award nominations. So Good for him. All well-deserved. Yeah, Can you imagine if this would have flopped? Oh, man. It, it would have been the end of Anthony Hopkins. Well, yeah. it would have been the legendary stage actor who never got to see Shrill. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, instead he'd, he'd appear on Doctor Who like all British actors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> British actors go to die. Doctor. <laughs> doctor. <laughs> um, Entertainment Weekly voted this the fourth scariest movie of all time. Which I scary. think that's a that's a stretch. When you're in like the psychological horror and suspense, that's just like that's a. But speaking of that, I. I'm going to put Norman Bates ahead of Hannibal Lecter, personally, in a psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. But I'll also say, like, a, a degree of uneasiness isn't necessarily, like, a horror to me. Like, it's, it's Well, I, like, I don't know. Once again, they're, they're, it's different because I wouldn't so much say it, it was more of the mystery of Norman Bates where, like, Hannibal Lecter, he's, he's an oppressive force in the movie. He's a gentleman where you never feel in control and you feel like he is always puppeteering the situation. Because he always seems to know everything, just like you know how they plan when they wrote the, when they, uh, when he wrote the character, and so it, it's a very different feel of like Norman Bates is more or less an uneasiness, and you really don't feel the unhingedness until the end, where you find out, oh, okay, he's two different people. You're right. Uh, but Hannibal Lecter is just right at the get go. You know what he is, yeah. and you know what he's capable of. You know what he can do, and yet you still, Clarice has to still come face to face knowing what he's capable of and what can do and how manipulative he can be. I mean, they show how manipulative he is uh, right afterwards when he all he does is talk to that the, the inmate that, um, that had assaulted Clarice in a gross fashion. Um, all he did was talk to him, and then he ended up taking his own life. Yeah. Which just shows sort of It's deeply unsettling to Exactly, ideas. exactly. Yeah. So, so it's like it shows how sort of manipulative he is capable of being yeah. um, which is obviously insinuated in the sequel but uh, yeah yeah like he's just sort of this this force to be reckoned with in this particular psychological thriller which is interesting because you know there are the two ways you can go which is the unknown factor of like Norman Bates let's say and then there's we know what it is and that's terrifying yeah and possibly genius yeah. psychopath yeah uh, Brooke Smith, who played Catherine, gained 25 pounds for her role. Um, she, her, and Ted Levine were also very got very close on the set, making Jodie Foster refer to Brooke Smith as Patricia Hurst, who was a kidnapping victim who later fell in love with her kidnapper. Um, also, Brooke Smith entered in and out of the pit uh, by crouching through a small door that was half her size. It was then covered with dirt to keep her or uh, keep it out of the side of the camera. Now, one thing um, that's interesting to me is the basement of this house is huge. Yeah, um, it, it, from the outside of the house, you saw you didn't think it was that big, but once she goes in the basement, she goes, 
you know, there's the there's the room with the, the the sewing stuff in it. Then there's another room that's all dark and everything. Then there's the other room with the pit. And I'm like, how far does this basement go? It was so, everywhere. Interesting fact about that basement. It was actually uh, that that was filmed in an abandoned factory. Like that that the whole sort of um, basement area. That that pit that basement area. Uh, it was this large area that they were able to build multiple sets on top of. But um, uh, I, I read a comment that they were like, it's just as gross as it looks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying to me, it, it, did it did the basement fit the house? Uh, yeah. I, actually, it, you're talking to somebody so, who's come from California. What, what, I don't know how big basements could be or are. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, this, okay, so uh <laughs> I live in a clean home, <laughs> but I do have a home of a similar layout in many respects. Of me, almost a shotgun style design. Kyle, Kyle sewing machine over exactly, here. Exactly, my skin suit. Don't ask. <laughs> but as it goes from room to room to room, and it kind of continuously goes further back into the property than you actually expect for a regular house, and then. Um, not really the case for the basement being very realistic, but it's also clear that Buffalo Bill um, clearly made alterations himself over presumably decades at that point of like digging it out and possibly doing his own. That's work. what that's what I was coming to. Was it yeah. a dug out where the hole? Was, you know. Yeah, yeah. So he dug out the hole, and obviously, I think also he has construction but, experience where he. Did but he couldn't have done it in a long period of time because the lady that lived there had just died. Yeah. So you can't say he's done it over time because Mrs. Lip, Lip, Lipowski or something like that, the lady that lived there had just recently because she was like, "Hey, can I?" Or they moved out or whatever. Couple he's, months. Yeah, passed. he's like, yeah. So because that was that was his um, his cover first up. victim, mm-hmm. but the fourth body they found. Well, that's one of those things where it's like it's not. Uh, it's unexplained, but it's not impossible that he had some way of, like, if he existed there, yeah, he could have found a way to inhabit that property before he fully moved in, before they died or moved away or something like that, to where he could have done those additions to the... Yeah, I guess that they, they also never completely explained the uh, sort of relationship between him and her. All you know is that there was a connection between the two, and he, she is somebody he saw yeah. every day and presumably learned how to sew. So, so it's not inconceivable that some way he found, he found to manipulate that prop her and that property to make it to his uh serial killer delights it will all be a mystery or hey maybe it's in the book yeah it's all in the book don't worry it's in the um, book. Yeah. If, you, if you buy my prequel book you know like casablanca in 1942 this movie contains a famous misquoted line most people quote dr hannibal lecter's famous saying when he meets clarice as what Hello, Clarice. That is not it. That is what everybody likes to say. That's what everybody likes to say, but that didn't appear until Hannibal in 2001. It's actually Good Evening, Clarice. When Dr. Hannibal Lecter and Clarice uh, Julian Moore speaks on the phone for the first time in Hannibal, he says, Hello, Clarice. This this was possibly put in by the writers as a joke, an inside joke in reference to the misquoting of this movie. (laughs) So... um, so, furthermore, uh, since the movie had an early release for the year 1991, it was the first movie that was also widely available on home video at the time of the Academy Awards ceremony to win Best Picture. So, kind of a fun little double fact on that. Yeah. Um, also, um, in uh, in Hannibal's uh, cell in the first scene, a copy of Bon Appetit magazine can be seen in Dr. Hannibal, Dr. Hannibal's um, <laughs> lecture cell because um, clearly he's a he's a foodie. <laughs> foodie. <laughs> <laughs> He likes a, he likes some several um, uh, exotic proteins. <laughs> yeah. 
this movie got rave reviews when it came out. Chicago Tribune film critic uh, Siskel and Ebert, if we, for those of us that are older know who they were, they're the greatest at the movies would be a television show that they did the uh, movie reviews. Um, he was in a story's hostile to horror movie, slammed the movie, and gave it only two stars. Yeah. He said in his review, director Deem superheats the silence of the lamps to the point of silliness in terms of both gross behavior and a pulsating soundtrack. The conclusion of this film is nothing more than a grisly version of every mad slasher picture you've ever mi- or you've ever missed. Jody's in trouble. Shoot, Jody, shoot. <laughs> the movie, of course, went on to become a phenomenon, a huge box office hit, and the only horror movie to ever win the Academy Award for Best Picture. It is now considered one of the best horror movies ever made and still has a huge cult following and fan base. Roger Ebert, Siskel's fellow film critic and sparring partner of At The Movies, loved the movie, and we continue to ridicule Siskel for missing the boat on this movie for years after this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the tobacco hornworm moths used throughout this movie was given celebrity treatment. They were flown first class to the set in a special carrier, had special living quarters, rooms with controlled humidity and heat, and were dressed in carefully designed costumes, body shields bearing a painted skull and crossbones. So, <laughs> a CGI eat your heart out. <laughs> uh, Yay, practical effects. We already talked about them. Uh, Sir John Hurt, Christopher Lloyd... Dustin Hoffman, Patrick Stewart, Lou Gossett Jr., Robert Duvall, Jack Nicholson, and Robert De Niro were all considered for the role of Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Jeremy Irons was asked but turned down the role as he just played Klaus von Bülow in Reversal of Fortune and didn't want to play another dark character. Very glad they went with that. Yeah, yes, I know that. That's in the, that's in my notes or your notes. Okay. Um, in 2016, The Empire Magazine, John Lithgow named Anthony Hopkins Lecter as one of the greatest screen villains of all times, adding, even though I was next in line for the role, John Lithgow, can you imagine? I can see him more as Buffalo Bill. Also, Martha Stewart and Anthony Hopkins dated briefly during production. Huh. Following the film's release, Stewart ended the relationship because she couldn't divorce Hopkins from his performance as Hannibal Lecter. Actually, no. That is very crazy. Actually, there, there's, there's... Next um, time, Martha Stewart. <laughs> it's very interesting that, that that's a case a lot of the time. Sometimes uh, when it comes to actors who portray villains, they portray them so well or they you know hear that they're... Uh, spouses portray them so well that they actually won't see the movie, so then they won't see their spouse different. Right. Uh, Buffalo Bill's dog, Precious, is a by Sean Freeze, <laughs> in case yeah. you want to get one that looks like Precious. Yeah. The uh, third EMS attendant, treating Sergeant Pimby, Alex Coleman, is Jeff Bush, a, para- a paramedic and owner of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania Emergency Vehicle Company that detailed all the emergency vehicles in this movie. Some of the scenes were filmed in Bel Air, Ohio, birthplace of Ted Levine, um, you know, who played Buffalo Bill. Dr. Hannibal Lecter said he ate victims' liver with some fava beans and a nice chante. Uh, liver, fava beans, and a wine all contain substance called uh, teramine, which can kill a person who has taken a certain class of antidepressant drugs known as MOA, MAO inhibitors. And MAO inhibitors were first were the first antidepressants development and used primarily, primarily on patients in mental institutions Lecter, that Lecter worked in and was committed to, to an instant mental institution. So. Great zombie director George A. Romero had a, oh. had a cameo in this. He is the bearded man who accompanies Dr. Frederick Chilton and the two guards who forcibly removed Clarice after a final meeting with Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Hmm. I thought that was very interesting. Um, also, Clarice was actually a big inspiration for Scully in the X-Files. That 
100% makes sense, yeah. And yeah. Jodie Foster herself actually did have a uh, small cameo, I think, within like season eight or seven or something like that. I haven't got that far. Yeah. Kyle, we haven't started that. We haven't started that <laughs> Someday. yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In an interview with John Carpenter, John Carpenter declared his disappointment over the movie for focusing on Clary Starling's character and that he would have loved to direct this, making it much more frightening and gripping. Yeah. I can only imagine what film he would have made. Not necessarily better, but definitely different. <laughs> um, Clarice and Hannibal Lecter has no physical contact in this movie except at the end when she's leaving him and their fingers actually he like kind of rubs her finger uh, in the file exchange in Memphis, Tennessee um, so I thought that was very interesting too yep. the uh, death head's marking on the moth is a reference to Edgar Allan Poe's famous short story The Gold Bug which also features an insect with a skull-like pattern on its back yeah Plum Island Animal Disease Research Facility is a real facility near Montauk, uh, Montauk New York the film was briefly considered for a direct-to-video release as studio executives felt that the film's subject matter was too distasteful to be marketed to a mass audience. That was a full-hearted decision. Yeah. Uh, it was subsequently <laughs> released on a Valentine's Day, an unusual release date for a horror movie, and remained at the number one at the box office for five weeks in a row. So, clearly they made the right call in the end, but man, that could have gone south quick. Right? It took a gamble, it paid off. That would have been like, you know, the, the year's beauty gem to being like a cult classic. <laughs> That's yeah, the whole difference know, right? there. Yeah. Um, inspiration for the song Buffalo. Oh, uh, this served as inspiration for the song Buffalo Bill by Eminem. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Michael Keaton, Mickey Rourke, and Sir Kenneth Bat- Bernard were all considered for the role of Jack Crawford. Oh, Michael Keaton would have been great. Michael right? Keaton would be. Well, Green Green everything, so of course he would have been great. <laughs> this movie is included on Roger, e- just Robert, Roger, e- Roger Ebert's greatest movies list. Can't believe I butchered that man's name. <laughs> Such a legend. Um, you terraced it. Yeah, I terraced it. <laughs> it happens. Uh, yep. Included amongst the 1001 movies you must see before you die, edited by Steven Schneider. Included amongst the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the top 100 greatest American movies. Besides Clarice, Catherine, besides Clarice and Catherine, Buffalo Dill doesn't interact with anyone else in the entire film. That's true. Yep. Along with his limited screen time. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the um, the scene where Buffalo Bill traps Catherine Martin is inspired by Ted Bundy. In the movie scene, Buffalo Bill, a.k.a. James Gum, James Gum, sorry, pretends to be a crippled person trying to move a couch in a street where he knows Catherine Martin may, happens to be watching. He limps along in the street, fake struggling with a couch, until Mrs. Martin finally offers to help him lift up, lift up the couch into his van. She goes in first at his request, and then when he sees she's concerned in the back of the van, he suddenly slams the door on her and drives off. This is taken from very true, from various true life accounts about how Bundy faking a broken arm while trying to carry some books. He would drop the books as part of a charade, and someone would watching him the whole time would offer to help him carry stuff to his car or his house. At which point he would capture the woman, much like Buffalo Bill in the movie, art imitates life, which imitates art, etc. All right. Well, there's so much more we could cover. I cut down uh, 13 pages of notes or so from this. Um, so uh, there's obviously a lot more, but we just did a lot of the highlights. So Terrence, go ahead and give us your thoughts on this movie. I still really enjoy this movie. Um, I'm I'm a huge fan of psychological thrillers in particular. Like it's it's my favorite like sort of horror genre, so to speak. Um, uh, I, I like like these over like slashers and stuff. I'm I'm just I really like psychological horror. So for me, it rates really high. It's got Anthony Hopkins, you know, Jodie Foster, just so many notable names. Uh, it's well written. The cinematography is phenomenal. Um, the score really accentuates the sort of sense of like like dread or like that sense of uh, you know what's going to happen next. Uh, so it's very well done. 
um, and complimenting and not sort of like overpowering or being sort of under delivered either. Uh, so it finds that nice middle ground. Um, I really have nothing but good things to say about it. So if you like psychological thrillers and for some reason haven't seen this or if you haven't seen it in a long time, give it another watch. Uh, yeah, this this one's a must watch in my book. And um, was it was it on the this one on the top hundred? Yes, it yeah, was. number seventy four. Seventy four. Seventy four. Top hundred. So yeah, yeah um, and I think it's I think it's pretty deserving. Uh, a lot, a lot of great performances, um, as, uh, just all across the board, uh, both technical and um, practical, as far as like you know this whole movie goes. So yeah, nothing. nothing I don't I don't think I have any. Um, complaints about the movie in particular either like it's a, it's a movie that like you know given more time you can really fully analyze this movie even deeper than we have on like you know just the surface level of it uh it's a good movie i enjoyed it i like it thumbs up yeah uh, i think i can totally echo what terrence said there i think this is a film that occupies the category of perfect or near perfect films in many respects where it is uh it has a deeply unsettling and distasteful and horrifying place, but yet makes it entertaining for you to still watch regardless and is a uh, masterclass in filmmaking on its own right where it infinitely rewards people for looking into it, finding out how the cinematographer works, the choices in dialogue and uh, acting and director and direction and everything like that and is an incredible film on its own right. So it's uh, absolutely a must-watch. Um, I can't promise to say it will be the film you enjoy the most. It's not necessarily going to be the, the, your favorite film of all time, but it is one of the films that um, you can easily appreciate and always enjoy, I believe. And uh, despite its uh, incredibly adult uh, uh, content. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely enjoy it. I think it's a 10 out of 10 all the way and love it. Jimbo, how do you feel? The thing I like about this movie is that it's... Uh, got plot upon plot upon plot upon plot. It's got different plots throughout the movie that all intertwine. You start with Jodie Foster and her uh, being a rookie on the FBI to yep. her childhood, uh, all the trauma from her childhood, to Hannibal Lecter being behind bars. You don't know why he was there. I mean, you know why, but you don't know why. Yeah, not because it details, doesn't really yeah. detail yeah. that out until later in, in in the other movies. Then you have the whole Buffalo Bill thing. And then you have the whole Senator thing. Then you have Anthony Hopkins being transferred. So now not only do you have Clarice and the FBI going after Buffalo Bill, now you have Hannibal Lecter escaping uh, seemingly unescapable odds where he kills the paramedics. And that whole scene is fantastic where he cuts the guy's face off and puts him oh, there yeah, to yeah. escape in the ambulance. So um, it doesn't get really grimy till later in the movie. It's just more of a psychological think ahead and try to put the puzzle pieces together as you go along. It's kind of like a whodunit a as you try to figure a, a it out. A mental game of chess. A plethora of chess yeah. pieces, yes. Uh, but Anthony Hopkins always has you in checkmate. And the ending of the movie is fantastic where she's receiving this award for... Uh, capturing buffalo bill and you know the fbi director is like well you deserve this basically whatever and he's like don't forget about your phone call so he goes over to the phone call and he's he's she's, he's like good evening clarice uh have you finally heard this lamb stop screaming she's like dr lecter he's like don't worry about it he's like he's she's like she's like no i need to know he's like well you won't find me she's like well you know i can't stop looking or whatever like and then he goes, she's like well where are you and he says I'm meeting an old friend for dinner, or having an old friend for dinner. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And then as you see him walking down that road at the end with his hat on, yeah, his hat blows off at some point, and a stagehand picks up because of the fact that. But I, was, <laughs> but I watched it last night, and I could not see it. I watched and watched as it goes down. I, and, I didn't and, catch and it. And they got down to about this far, and I, I was like, I still could, I still could see it. But they say it's in there, so. 
Well, this has been a longer than normal episode. Uh, hope you stuck around for it. Um, but I think uh, our next movie is even more epic. Uh, ben Hur. Uh, so stay tuned for another long episode next time. So that being said, this long episode is coming to close, and that's a wrap. And fellas, and, and cut. cut.